0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24. Hey there,
2: I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: So, what are you doing now? Perhaps you're out for a walk, folding laundry, sitting in a car mired in traffic. You may be exactly where you want to be, or you might be wishing you were anywhere else. In that case, you're feeling the confinement of being stuck in the here and now and would like nothing better than escape.
4: The Time Tunnel!
3: On TV or in the movies, it's easy to say adios to the present. You simply step into a steampunk-engineered machine and then zip back and forth in time. It's as easy as strolling from room to room. Physicists tell us that real time travel is more challenging, but weirdly, maybe not impossible. At least if you're willing to broaden your definition of time travel, I'm Seth Shostak.
5: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, we explore the nature of time and whether we can understand the laws of physics well enough to time travel. Can we go to the past or jump far ahead to the future? Well, if you have figured out how to do this, then you know that that's the theme of this episode. You've already heard it. It's Time Travel Agents.
3: Here are two movie versions of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. I have to say, I like
4: them both.
1: As I went along, I gained experience in handling the machine. I I found that I could stop for a day, an hour, or even for a second to observe, then go ahead a year or two. Thus, I was able to see the changing world in, in a series of glimpses.
3: In the earlier version, it's the year 1900, and the scientist H. George Wells, yep, the author gave his character his own name, has outfitted a do-it-yourself machine that looks like a sled with a solar sail, boasting a lovely chair with red velvet seat covers. All right, he climbs aboard this thing, he pulls a few levers, you know, and goes into the future a dozen years, and then 40 years to witness World War II. Then he goes deep into the future where things haven't gotten better, Humans have become tasty treats for subterranean monsters called Morlocks. But if you're not turned off by this meet and greet and eat, you, you might be asking, hey, where can I get me one of those doohickey time machines?
5: Well, if you had asked a physicist a century or two ago, the answer was you can't. Certainly not a machine that travels to the past. And this is because if you could travel backward, you could theoretically kill your ancestors, and you wouldn't be here to build the time machine in the first place. This is sometimes called the grandfather paradox, although it could easily be called the grandmother paradox.
3: But that was how we thought about time travel then, and this is now. So we now know just how weird physics can get. Einstein's theory of relativity, the warping of space-time, Black holes, quantum theory, they're all incentive to revisit the possibility of time travel, both into the future and into the past. For one, quantum theory suggests a possible instantaneous leap through time, teleportation. In a moment, we'll hear from a professor of quantum mechanics at MIT, Seth Lloyd, who describes a recent successful teleportation experiment and how he himself tried to challenge the grandfather paradox by sending a photon back in time to destroy itself.
5: That is so weird.
3: Well, what would you expect from modern physics? Okay, let's break down teleportation. All right, the basics. Teleportation means making something that's here be over there in an instant. So if you're in New York and you have an appointment in London and can get there in an eye blink, Well, that's time travel in the sense that you've saved hours of time to get there. Not to mention moolah in airfare and a peanut overdose. You're telling me that the contract needs to be signed
4: by me?
0: Well, yes. In the fine print, you'll find... In person? Yes. And I
4: have to do it in the next 30 seconds or I forfeit $50,000? Oh, that's crazy!
0: Yes, sir. So sorry it won't work out this time.
4: But not impossible.
6: Hi there. Crikey! Nice office. You got a view of Big Ben and everything. Got a pen?
5: Sounds like Thames travel to me. Well, (laughs) teleportation has been done with photons, particles of light, over small distances. But researchers in Toronto have gone further by teleporting their photon farther, over a distance of four miles or six kilometers. It's a record. (laughs)
3: Now, what makes teleportation possible is quantum entanglement, what Einstein thought was spooky because, well, after all, how can a photon here affect a photon over there, when over there could be the other side of the universe? And do so not at the speed of light, but essentially instantaneously. Nonetheless, it works. But what do two particles being quantum entangled on opposite
5: sides of the universe have to do with teleporting something?
3: Well, you use the entanglement to give you the information necessary to do the teleportation. you examine the particle you want to recreate to teleport as well as a local quantum entangled particle. Then you transmit the results of your measurement, maybe with a radio signal, to the destination. Those results, together with the instantaneously transmitted state of the entangled particle, allows you to recreate the teleportee exactly. Voila, a new version of the particle you wanted to teleport.
5: Yes, voila, it's that simple. Well, the question is, if we can teleport photons, could we one day teleport humans?
3: Well, that's the biggie. You know, when I think of teleportation, I think of something like The Fly, you know, both versions of that film. In the 1959 version, David Hedison eventually steps into a a telepod over here and then appears instantly in a telepod on the other side of the room. But he tests this out first with an ashtray.
0: Have you turned magician?
3: In a way. For a split second, an infinitesimal part of a second. This was disintegrated. One little moment, it no longer existed.
6: This is solid. Oh, no, no, it's not.
3: To your touch, maybe it is. But in reality, it's billions of atoms, which we believe are only a series of electrical impulses. You actually did this? It's it's no trick? No. I can transport matter, anything. Talk about time flying. All right, returning to the present. Seth Lloyd says we, and flies, don't have telepods yet, which is good news for the airlines, but teleportation exists, and the success of the Canadian researchers maybe has just brought us a little closer to the future.
6: Yeah, well, it's teleportation of photons, which are the elementary particles that make up light. You destroy the photon you want to teleport over here, and then you reconstruct exactly the same photon over there.
3: Okay, so, I mean, this has been done before, right? I mean, why was this in the news?
6: So, people have actually been teleporting particles of light for almost 20 years now, but this was the first time that teleportation actually took place over a long distance, well, six kilometers is a reasonable distance, and over standard telecom fiber optic cable.
3: So, a lot of people are going to wonder how you did this, and it involves what is known as quantum entanglement, Uh, And quantum entanglement is a term that gets bandied around a lot at cocktail parties by people who probably have no idea what it means, including myself. It's a term to describe the kind of weird idea that objects are, in fact, connected by some sort of uh, spooky mechanism at
6: great distances. Is
3: that what's going on here?
6: Yeah, entanglement is a funky quantum effect. Funky is a technical term here by the way. Uh, quantum mechanics is the James Brown of sciences. All funk all the time. So it's a funky kind of relationship between two quanta, in this case two photons, which Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Actually he called it fernwirkung which sounds even cooler. And to our, you know, classical minds, entanglement means if we make a measurement on one of these entangled photons, it appears to our brains as if the other photon responds immediately.
3: Okay, but that sounds like a, you know, violation of what Al Einstein would have said, right? I mean, how can I touch a photon here in my living room, say, and its twin, maybe in the
6: Andromeda galaxy two million light years away, knows about it. Right. So in point of fact, it doesn't violate what Al Einstein would have thought because you can't actually send information faster than the speed of light using entanglement. But you can do other kind of strange and counterintuitive things and teleportation is one of them.
3: All right. Can you describe <clears throat> exactly how they did it? If I were there watching this experiment, what would I have seen? I mean, what, you know, how did they know that it worked? How did they know that they'd sent this photon somewhere else, because to me, all photons look pretty much the same to the extent that I've seen any.
6: Well, yes, photons are, do have the feature, that one photon that is in exactly the same quantum state, say, with the same polarization as another photon in the same color or frequency, is exactly the same as another photon with the same polarization and frequency. So they are identical, and this is actually important for teleportation. So traditionally in these kinds of experiments, the person who's teleporting, who's sending the photon from one place to another, is called Alice, and the other person is called Bob. Now in this case, um, Bob is Wolfgang Tittel, who is a very wonderful and excellent experimentalist at the University of Calgary, because this is a beautiful experiment. But the way it works is you set up an entangled pair of photons between Alice and Bob. So Alice has one and Bob has one. And then Alice takes her photon, which is a different photon that she wants to teleport. She makes a measurement on her photon together with her half of the entangled pair. This gives her some just classical information, in fact, two bits of classical information. She sends those two bits to Bob over, say, the telephone. And then this information allows Bob to reconstitute or reconstruct Alice's photon at the other end.
3: Okay. so But it is essential that she send that information, and of course, that goes no faster than the speed of light.
6: Exactly. So teleportation does not take place faster than the speed of light if you're not in a black hole. And uh, uh, so uh, in order for you to teleport, you do have to send a signal at the speed of light or slower, and so it doesn't violate anything that Einstein might have said.
3: All right. So these two particles, even two particles of light right? And, and, you know, very often you don't think of light as being made of particles, but I think that that's pretty well established by now. They're connected by something. And and what is that connection? I mean, I mean, some springs, gears? I mean, what is it?
6: Well, from a practical standpoint, if you don't look inside the guts of the teleportation apparatus, it really means that if you want to teleport your photon... And by the way, all things that are waves are made out of particles. Phonons are particles of sound. I think that if they had particles of love, they'd be called amorons. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> if from your practical purpose, you, you basically have a photon you want to teleport. You hand it over to Alice. Alice and Bob go through their little quantum teleportation dance and uh, a few millionths of a second later, Bob has your photon. So from a practical standpoint, it just means you can take the photon, destroy it here and then reconstitute an identical photon at the far end. And there's no
3: distance limit on that. I mean, you can do this essentially instantaneously if that photon is on the
6: other side of the universe. Well, again, you're not doing it instantaneously, because in order to reconstitute the photon, Alice has to send a signal at the speed of light to Bob. So you can't violate special relativity. Mm. But it is true that entanglement, this kind of funky, spooky action at a distance, is essential to teleportation. Everything has a wave-like nature, things that we think of as particles, electrons or atoms, but also human beings. Soccer balls have a wave-like nature. So in principle, it would be possible to teleport a virus or a bacterium or, for that matter, a human being. It's not against the laws of physics.
3: Well, if it's not against the laws of physics, does that mean that this is just an engineering problem that eventually
6: we'll be able to do this? It's a very hard engineering problem, but yeah, I mean, maybe we'll be able to do this. I wouldn't volunteer to be the first person to be teleported, though, if I were you.
3: <laughs> well, you saw what happened to uh, Jeff uh, Goldblum in The Fly. You know, there was a fly in the teleportation apparatus, and he came. He wasn't reconstituted correctly, as
6: I recall. Absolutely, and since his name, I believe, was Seth, and that I take this unkindly.
3: Yes, so did I. <laughs> well, well, I mean,
6: well. In an analog
3: to the grandfather paradox, and I remind uh, people that the grandfather paradox is where, you know, you have a time machine a la H.G. Wells. You go back in time and you kill your grandfather, which is kind of a problem because how would you be there to do it? Uh, There were some experiments in Toronto that tried to send a photon of light back in time and have it destroy itself. How, how did that work out?
6: Yeah, that was a beautiful experiment done by Ephraim Steinberg. I was a co-author of on those experiments because a few years ago my colleagues and I proposed just in theory that you could use teleportation to understand how time travel would work. And in fact, even though time travel sounds pretty bizarre and it certainly contradicts the notion that you can't go faster than the speed of light, in Einstein's theory of general relativity, time travel is allowed. And in the current theory of how black holes evaporate, people also speculate that you could effectively go backwards in time. And the method is based on teleportation. Basically, if you want to escape from a black hole, and to escape from a black hole, you you have to go faster than the speed of light, by definition. The idea is that inside the black hole, you have half of an entangled pair, and the other half is outside. This, by the way, is well known to be the case. This is Stephen Hawking's great discovery, Hawking radiation. And then the thing that's trying to escape from the black hole gets smushed into nothingness together with half of the entangled pair at the singularity of the black hole, where everything gets smushed into nothingness. And then, under the right circumstances, the photon that escapes outside of the black hole then actually is the same as the photon that got smushed to nothingness at the singularity. So, information... And stuff in general could actually escape from a black hole. And it does so by a process that's very closely analogous to teleportation.
3: And this could involve time travel
6: is what Absolutely. So in Ephraim Steinberg's beautiful experiment, basically we took one photon, we effectively used teleportation to send it backwards in time by a few billionths of a second, and then This other photon that got sent backwards in time interacted with the first photon, its former self, and tried to kill its former self. Because what the hey, there's no society for prevention of cruelty to photons.
3: (laughs) But that's coming (laughs) according
6: to you. (laughs) Well, you never know in this day and age. (laughs) We'll see. Um, Yeah, so um, one can actually do an experiment, which is really the moral equivalent of time travel. That's what we did. Yeah, And something funny happened, which was that—I'm not saying that photons didn't die in this experiment. Um, it wasn't like one of those movies where they say, you know, no animals were harmed in the course of this movie. Uh, <laughs> lots of photons managed to die. But the one photon that tried to kill itself, its former self, always failed. No matter how hard it tried, it failed. And so it was a resolution of the grandfather paradox, because it says— in this version of teleportation to the past, if you will, then you can't mess around with your former self.
3: Yeah, but is there a law of nature that uh, involved here, or was it just maybe the experiment wasn't up to snuff? I mean, can can you categorically say that nature will prevent you from killing your grandfather?
6: Uh, no, I, I can't categorically say that, although. <laughs> This emphasis on killing one's grandfather, I think, is a little bit much. I love my grandfather. If I met him at an earlier, you know, as he was a young man, I'd take him out for a beer and, you know, maybe introduce him to my grandmother. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> Doesn't situation... sound like physics, but... <laughs> uh, well, you know, physics involves a lot of socialization and, and talking and socializing, <laughs> and, and in my case, drinking beer with my colleagues. So I don't really see whether there's anything against it. But um, we can't really know. So the experiment that Ephraim did was a, test, a demonstration of our theory. But to find out if the theory is really correct, we'd need to have what's called a closed time-like curve or a pair of black holes in order to test what really happens in nature when things try to go backwards in time. So the experiment verified the way our theory was supposed to work, because our theory very kindly prevents us from killing our grandfather. But to know that we really can't kill our grandfather. You'd have to see if the theory really applies in black holes and closed time-like curves.
3: That sounds like a tough experiment.
6: Well, we asked you at MIT, but, you know, for some reason the workplace safety people said, no, you can't create a black hole in the laboratory. We said, what? You fools. You're standing in the way of science. But they were adamant.
3: <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for a, uh, 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 an interview that seemed to go faster than the speed of light.
6: Seth Lloyd, <laughs> thank you very much for speaking with me. Okay, and if you want to talk with me again, just call me last Thursday.
5: (laughs) Seth Lloyd is a professor of quantum mechanical engineering at MIT. And that was Seth talking to Seth. It's... Kind of a quantum entanglement of Seth. Both are talking physics, both are making jokes, it's spooky. Do you know what Seth Lloyd is doing right now?
3: No, actually, I, I, I can't say that I do. I wish I did. <laughs> okay, so maybe you're not entangled. Well, no, not as far as I know. But, but I want to emphasize that teleportation, as nifty as it is, doesn't allow you to teleport something faster than the speed of light because you have to send that information.
5: And that Seth Lloyd was not able to get a photon to go back and destroy itself, its earlier self.
3: No, he hasn't done that yet.
5: Coming up, we're talking about shortcuts through time and some pretty weird physics. But we haven't discussed time itself. What is it? A physicist thinks he has a testable definition.
3: It's time travel agents on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen. Or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash X-N-A-S. Clocks tell us what time it is. And we've improved the accuracy of clocks to the point that a strontium atomic clock loses maybe a second only every 15 billion years. In other words, if there had been a, such a clock built at the time of the Big Bang, it would still be accurate to better than a second. But while clocks tell us what time it is... They don't tell us what time itself is. Now, Isaac Newton, he thought time passed uniformly. You know, at a relentless rate, everywhere the same. But Einstein understood that
5: time was relative. And this is because in order for the speed of light to be constant, something else has to give. And that something turns out to be somethings. And those are mass, length, and time another aspect of physics that's easy to recite, but it's hard to get your head around.
3: Well, here's an example to think about. Imagine you have a wristwatch, and it's set to the same time as your pal's wristwatch. Now, if you see him walking down the hall, his watch, from your perspective, will seem to be ticking more slowly. He will seem to be aging less rapidly, to your dismay and consternation, but to him, It seems his watch is ticking normally and yours is slow.
5: So why isn't everyone's watch out of sync with everyone else's?
3: Well, this plastic nature of time its a consequence of Einstein's theory of special relativity is a very small effect unless you're moving very fast, you know, uh, tens of thousands of miles per second or more. The relatively speaking slow motion of our daily lives makes this phenomenon usually inconsequential, although it's happening. Can you measure it in a lab? Yes. Oh, yes. You can measure it in an airplane. You can... Put a clock in an airplane, fly it around the world, and compare it with a clock that was on the ground the whole time, and they're different. But, but there are other phenomena other than motion that can bend time. For example, gravity.
5: The stronger the gravitational pull, the more things would slow down, including clocks.
3: Right. So you don't age as quickly in a basement apartment as in the penthouse, where gravity's slightly weaker because you're farther from the center of the earth. Okay, these effects are small, probably trillions of a second or something, but they're not zero.
5: What if the penthouse apartment is right on top of the basement apartment?
3: Well, then that's a really cheap apartment (laughs) building, I would say. That's a one-floor apartment building, and they shouldn't call that a penthouse. They should call that the lobby. But as insightful as Einstein was about the plasticity of time, even he didn't say what time was. What was the essence of time? This is deeper. This is a, almost a philosophical question.
5: A physicist at the University of California, Berkeley, Richard Muller says he has a new definition of time, one that's testable, and it replaces a traditional interpretation of what time is that's been a fallback for a
3: century. That idea, which purports to explain why time moves in one direction, like an arrow, originally came from Sir Arthur Eddington, one of the great brains of the 20th
4: century.
5: And it comes down to what does and what doesn't change in our universe, says
4: Dr. Muller. If you look at the laws of physics, you find energy doesn't change. Energy is conserved. You find the momentum, the mass times the velocity, never changes. These are what are called conservation laws. But entropy, which is a measure of confusion, does change. The world is getting more confused. He's
3: not referring to politics, although in a way he kind of is. Sir Eddington postulated that time was tied to something called entropy. Entropy is a measure of disorder. The more random and disordered a system is, the greater is its entropy. And for any system, entropy only increases. Think of it. You know, the lovely buildings of ancient Greece. Well, if you go look at them today, they've they've mostly decayed. Weeds have grown through the floor, whatever. Their entropy has gotten greater. They're less organized.
4: A typical example they give is if you drop a coffee cup, it will break into pieces, it becomes disorganized, it will not spontaneously come back together.
5: And that observation, that there is a one-way direction for disorder, that things become more disorderly, not less, gave Sir Arthur Eddington the idea that the forward motion of time was tied to the relentless increase of entropy in the universe. And that has been the definition of time ever
4: since. Since Eddington, there's been no real progress in understanding time. And most physicists simply repeat Eddington's argument I ask people, uh, why does time move forward? And they say, oh, it's uh, probably entropy. But Dr. Muller finds Sir Eddington's idea flawed. Where I think he made his mistake was in not drawing attention to the fact that all of civilization, all of life, is, is actually characterized by decrease in entropy. Now, the law of physics says entropy must increase. So when we build a coffee cup out of clay, we're decreasing the entropy of the clay. How can that be compatible with physics? Well, the answer is there's entropy in the heat that's radiated out to infinity, and if you include all of the entropy, then entropy is increasing. But locally, refrigerators reduce entropy because they cool things. When things are cooled, they become more organized, just like an ice cube become, is more organized than liquid water.
5: Dr. Muller has another idea of what time is that he says is testable. But to get there, from here, so to speak, we first travel through a concept which he explores in his new book,
4: Now. The word now is the essence of the human experience. We all know what it means, and yet uh, physics ignores the issue. Uh, philosophers have talked about it. They've talked about what is the meaning of now. goes back to Aristotle and, and, and before that. And they were equally confused. Uh, now. The flow of time, the meaning of time, is not part of physics. It's it's mysterious. We know a lot about time. We know that time slows down when you go deeper. If you go upstairs, time runs faster. These are things that were discovered and elucidated by Einstein. But why it moves in the first place, physics has not addressed that issue. My question was, does physics have anything it can say about this mysterious and ever-changing moment we call now.
3: Well, for a physicist, time is what? Time is uh, just a parameter in an equation? Like, you know, distance equals velocity
4: times time? Well, that's the way it used to be, uh, right up until Einstein. I like to think of time and space as the stage in which the play of physics took place. And physicists looked at that play. They see objects falling. They describe them in terms of positions on the stage and the clock on the wall. Then Einstein did something fantastic in 1905. He said, time is part of physics. Uh, This was a conceptual breakthrough. His original theory of relativity does not require any advanced math. It's just, just algebra. And in that theory of relativity... The thing that was difficult about it was that he was saying time is not a universal constant. It depends on where you are. It depends on how fast you're moving. Uh, He brought time into physics. Instead of it just being a way of describing physics, now time was part of physics. That That was, in my mind, his greatest genius. So what he was
3: saying was that time was kind of plastic. It was somewhat flexible. It wasn't invariant, a, a series of very accurate clocks ticking all over the universe in synchronism.
4: That was, that, that was his breakthrough, and it's the toughest thing to understand. When, when I teach about relativity theory, it's not the math. It, it's this concept that, well, as I said, you go upstairs and time goes, time goes faster. Uh, if you take a clock with you, uh, you won't see any change, but when you come back down then your clock will show a different time than the one down here. It's a small effect, unless you get close to a black hole. And that's what is depicted in in some of these recent movies, the slowing down of time, but it's real. I see this in the laboratory myself. I've measured this myself. Modern physics, you see this every day. The
3: the arrow of time is uh, very rigidly in one direction. Are we correct in saying that?
4: In our experience, we have never seen things going back in time, although Feynman speculated that in the microscopic world, things can move backward in time and do. So he came up with this idea of something we call Feynman diagrams, in which when electrons interact with each other, there's this tiny little region out of reach of any experiment in which things for very short times go backwards in time. It was fascinating, but he he actually introduced reversal of time into his theory of quantum mechanics.
3: We heard from Seth Lloyd that travel into the past might be possible in the vicinity of a black hole. Is that a useful fact? I mean, does that mean we could build a time machine if all we had to do was get to a black hole
4: and do it? Well, it it would be a useful fact if it were a fact. So there was a paper written uh, in 1980s, I believe, showing that... If you had a double black hole, something we refer to as a wormhole, that's the sort of two black holes connecting each other, that it could be possible that you can go backward in time by jumping into one end and popping out the other. But when the theory was worked out in more detail, what they showed was that the double black hole, this wormhole, doesn't exist long enough for you to do that. So the speculation was that maybe we can come up with some new force that, 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 we don't know about, that could stabilize the wormhole. And then you'd be able to go backwards in time. Uh, th- this was a paper written by Kip Thorne, who actually was the scientific uh, advisor for the movie Interstellar. Uh, the movie Interstellar gets all the physics right. Uh, it's a little bit speculative, but the things it does, it gets mostly right. But Kip Thorne admitted that his wormhole does not allow you to go backward in time, despite the fact that That his article published in the prestigious Physical Review Letters uh, had a title of Backward Time Travel in it. It doesn't quite work. That hasn't stopped people from speculating that maybe this force will be discovered someday. People will be able to stabilize wormholes and then we'll be able to move back in time. Currently in physics, motion back in time is not possible. Sounds like I'm not going to witness the Civil War firsthand.
3: (laughs) Okay, well, look. Rich, if time isn't just the inevitable increase in entropy, maybe there's another definition we could get to. You consider a cosmological explanation for the flow of time. Time is a consequence of the fact that 13 billion years ago, there was a big bang. Can, can you tell me how that
4: works? <laughs> well, one of Einstein's great innovations is that we exist in space-time and that we, we should think of space and time in a unified way. So my idea that's put forth in this book and in a scientific publication that is uh, in addition to the book is that whenever we create new space, we create new time. Now, when you think, what do you mean by creating new space? How can you do that? In relativity theory, it's not very hard. Uh, For example, if you and I are sitting looking at each other as we are, uh, there's a distance between us. If I were to take a microscopic black hole, and these things can be quite lightweight, and place it exactly in between you and me, then the distance, the straight-line distance between you and me, would, when that black hole is there, actually be infinite. The distance from you to the surface of the black hole is infinite, and from the surface of the black hole to me is infinite. So here we have altered space by just moving an object in between us. Uh, This sounds really weird, but when you think about it, it's kind of hard to define what space is. And we do that by sending light beams through and seeing how long it takes. And if we were to put that black hole between you and me and you were to shine a flashlight, the light would not reach me because we would have an infinite distance to go. So space is flexible. It is stretchable. It can be twisted. There are many weird things. But it can also be created. And it can also be created. Now, the, when I came up with this theory, the idea was we know space is being created because the universe is expanding. And so there's no more space every second. Let's assume that's the relationship between time and space, that time is going on because we have not just a three-dimensional Big Bang, we have a four-dimensional Big Bang in which time is expanding too. And every new moment that is created is what we call a new now. When you experience now, you're experiencing the Big Bang, the 4-D Big Bang, now, we're, now, We're, we're now.
3: kind of on the uh, leading
4: edge of the creation of this ocean of, of time. Is That's what right. You're saying. The past exists, it's back there, uh, but we can't do anything about it because the only moment in time when we can exercise our free will is is the moment now, the the moment that was just created.
3: So. When people ask me, and they often do, they say, what was there before the Big Bang? Uh, It sounds like it would be correct to say, well, there wasn't any time before the Big Bang, and consequently, the question doesn't
4: mean too much. Well, I like to draw a distinction between physics as speculation, which I love to engage in, and physics as science. It is speculative, and I love this speculation, that time and space were both created in the big bang that prior to that makes no sense because there was no time and you can't talk it's like saying what happens if two things are closer together than zero distance the question doesn't make sense what happened before the big bang question doesn't make sense but that isn't really science because based on that i'm not able to make any predictions that are testable now it's conceivable that the big bang is only an approximation that we had a collapsing universe that bounced That's possible. And some people have speculated on that, and and they make predictions based on that. If we ever see that, see their predictions come true, then we'll take that seriously. But I love the speculation that maybe time didn't exist until the Big Bang.
3: Well, finally, Rich, because our time is just about up here, there's the idea that at the end of the day, science, and in particular physics, can understand not only the flow
4: of time, but everything. What's your take on that? I'm really proud of the fact that with this new theory, it is a scientific theory because it makes a prediction that is testable. Uh, I was very excited when uh, just recently there was the announcement uh, by the uh, Laser Interferometer Gravity Wave Experiment called LIGO that two black holes had been seen coming together. Now, as a physicist, I recognize that when two black holes come together, you create millions of cubic miles of new space fantastic. There's nothing else that happens that creates so much space so quickly. In a few thousandths of a second, it created all this new space. So that should have created more time, only locally. I looked at the data to see if that could be tested. Their uncertainty in time was about one thousandth of a second. That's how well they measured things. My prediction was there should be an extra delay of one one thousandth of a second. So it just barely missed. Oh! However, In the next year or two, it's very likely they'll see a similar event, but much closer to us. If and when that is observed, they'll have much more accuracy, and my prediction that there was a local creation of new time can be checked, the theory can be ruled out, it's wrong, or it can be substantiated. So I'm looking forward to this. I think all new theories should have predictions. Otherwise, they're not part of science. They're part of science fiction.
3: So 100 years from now, in the physics textbooks, you might be remembered as the guy who finally understood the flow of time.
4: Uh, That would be a wonderful, wonderful outcome of all this.
3: Richard Muller, thanks so very much for
4: speaking with us. Uh, It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
5: Richard Muller is a physicist at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's the author of Now, the Physics of Time. Well, you don't have to travel at relativistic speeds to experience seemingly uneven progress in time. Just stand in line at the
1: supermarket.
3: That's next. It's time travel agents on Big Picture Science.
1: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles.
3: We're hearing that time is flexible and there are different ways to time travel, or at least manipulate time. Here's another way to do it that doesn't require a Victorian time machine, a spaceship, black hole, wormhole, or teleportation device. Just step into a long line at the bank.
5: And watch as time slows down to a crawl. Not all cultures fall in line, but for those that do, it's a social imperative, like for my sister-in-law, Emma.
0: Brits will generally form a line if a line is required. So if there's something worth waiting for, they'll be in a line for it. Is there anything that's not worth waiting for and not standing in a line? There's always the possibility that you're in the wrong line. The one that basically doesn't move as quickly as the other ones next to it. So as you're coming up to the checkout, you're scanning all the open tills and working out which one is going to be the one that will get you through before that person over there who also has the same amount of shopping. So there's a I think people in Britain don't mind waiting. They're brought up to expect to wait and expect to get in a queue for some things. But, you know, there's an understanding it is irritating and that if they can get through more quickly than Joe
5: Bloggs over there, that's what they'd like to do. Do you have a a memorable queuing experience, one that was particularly amusing or distressing? (laughs) The first queue I recall
0: being in actively, so it was my own choice that I was in that queue, was when I was about 16. I was in the queue with my brother at an amusement park. We were waiting for the tallest, most terrifying, exciting roller coaster ride in the world. And we'd stood in the queue for 20 minutes when we came to a sign that announced, wait time, from here, five more hours. We left, and I thought, you know, I'm not interested in being in really, really long queues. I think I'm going to avoid them for the rest of my
3: life. We might be able to help Emma Bentley with those long lines, but not if she gets in the wrong line, David Andrews has some tricks for making time in line go faster. He's the author of Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster? He shares the tricks that businesses use to keep you from heading to the exit. Adopt these, and time will fly by while you wait for that next register to open up.
5: Well, David, you have a strong reaction to waiting in line. I think that's an understatement, (laughs) given your book. How would you characterize the feeling it evokes in you?
2: Well, it feels like kind of feverish, to be honest. Boredom kind of takes on its own kind of personality. And you're watching the clock and feeling of being trapped, stuck in a situation that you didn't ask for.
5: The big existential questions come into play for you.
2: (laughs) Yes. Particularly, why am I here?
5: (laughs) Now, could it be a line of any length? I mean, I assume two people in front of you in line is going to have a different reaction than 20 people.
2: Uh, yeah, of course. Not all lines are the same. I mean, we have one word for lots of different kinds of lines. There's lines people volunteer for, and it's different from lines that are uh, at the DMV where you are you have to go there. And so we experience the lines in very different ways, depending on how voluntary or involuntary
5: one of the things your your book brought to the fore for me is how much time we spend in lines whether it's lines for coffee which here in California we're willing to stand in very long lines for coffee <laughs> banks but also the freeway or when we're in a queue on the phone. I mean we spend a lot of time in line.
2: Yeah, and a lot of the time these lines are invisible to us as you mentioned like the the phone queue. We don't actually see the people in front of us. You're you're queuing up every time you use the internet and have to use know, shared bandwidth. Uh, We don't realize the way that cues operate in all aspects of our life.
5: I was surprised to read that there is a science of studying lines. Is it a challenge for mathematicians or for psychologists?
2: So what you're referring to, I believe, is cue theory, which is um, a science that began in 1903, and it started off very much a something for mathematicians. It's a way of figuring out what the statistical likelihood that X number of customers is going to use your service at a given period of time. It was actually started in in response to phone queues. So the Copenhagen Telephone Company, uh, you know, is having, you know, these influx of calls. And this is in the days of switchboard operators. And they don't know how many switchboard operators they will need at a given hour. And so a man named Agner Erlang developed the science of queue theory, which... Basically, based on the time of day, based on the the historical frequency of calls at that time, they can have a statistical likelihood of how many calls are going to receive in a given hour, and therefore how many switchboard operators to have at a given time. And this mathematical study has large-scale impacts on the internet. Uh, Disney World, lots of companies use this to basically know how many staff to hire at a given hour. Or how uh, Disney World, how many people are going to use the Dumbo ride at 3 p.m. on Tuesdays in the winter.
5: We've been talking earlier in the show about different ways of traveling through time. And in your book, you outline the way in which standing in line can alter our perception of time. It is a kind of time travel without having to get into a spaceship. How so?
2: Well, so this is observations of, of people who study like operations research, which is the study of how to efficiently manage operations of business. Uh, but what people like Dr. Richard Larson at MIT who goes by the name Dr. Q, things that they have observed is that sometimes you don't need to make businesses more efficient. What you can do is actually tweak people's perceptions of waiting because a lot of this is very subjective in our heads. And so there are actually certain um, ways that companies can make time feel shorter. For instance, when you go to the doctor's office and you're waiting around, they'll often have magazines so you can read, and that's because occupied time feels shorter than unoccupied time. So if you give you a magazine, you're not bored. There's a great example actually in Manhattan, I forget what decade this was, but You know, they had these newfangled skyscrapers with elevators in them, and people were complaining at how long the elevators would take. And they simply came up with a beautifully elegant fix, which is to simply put mirrors next to the elevators so that people are, you know, checking their makeup and checking their hair. And it gives them something to do other than be aware of the time that they're waiting for the elevator.
5: So it's this idea that we don't like our time wasted and and we don't like to feel captive to someone else's schedule is that it
2: yeah so captive to someone else's schedule and someone else's space as well so another tactic there's all these like tweaks that is they're easy to do for companies who have chronic weight problems but like if you're if you're both captive in sense of time and in space so oftentimes for instance um, restaurants now, well, if you're waiting, you have to wait for 45 minutes for a table, they will hand you a buzzer and they'll let you know when the table is ready. So you can go off and wander and you're not you're not stuck in a, a physical line. You're still in line, but you don't feel trapped. That'll make the time seem much shorter. So this is where like the psychology of queuing butts up against efficiency. What is best for the business versus what is best for the customer?
5: Well, well here, let me ask you this. If we wanted to make the line move as slowly as possible, what is the tip you would give us?
2: Never let the customer know how long the line is. Turn into as much of a Kafkaesque, uh, Kafka-esque process as possible with no explanation of why you're waiting or how long the wait's going to last. Not knowing how long one is going to wait or why one is waiting is the most torturous thing.
5: Okay, so you said that one of the things that makes time go by more quickly in a line is is you know where you are in line, okay, and you feel like it's orderly. That's part of it. Maybe you have something to do in line, but also not seeing how long the line is. And in the bank, that's not necessarily going to be the case, but it might be in a place like Disney World. And I wonder if you can tell me how they employed um, some pretty sophisticated psychology to deal with their chronically long lines.
2: Yeah, so uh, yeah, Disney is really the state of the art of line standing. If anybody has used the uh, science of queue theory, it is Disney who has, for instance, has designed their parks in such a way that they can make people experience the wait as less onerous than it might otherwise seem to be. So for instance, you always know, you don't always know, but usually you know, have a good estimate of how long you'll be waiting for. So no one's going into a certain ride without those estimated wait times above the entrance. And so you know how much time to budget for this. Sneakily, they also tend to inflate those times so that when it, 40 minutes actually turns into a half an hour, you feel like you can count your lucky stars that like somehow is more efficient than you thought it was going to be. They also do things like in their lines, they make sure to have entertainment within the lines so if the lines are too long they'll often send it like a little mini parade with Goofy and Mickey Mouse to help distract people.
5: Well one of the things you also describe on this idea of not being able to see the head of the line is you make the lines um, serpentine or so that they wind around and you can't quite see how long the line is that's a psychological trick.
2: Yeah and banks do this as well um, with their serpentine lines.
5: But you can see the the head of the line in a bank, whereas at a place like Disney World you can't actually see the front of the line. Isn't that the point?
2: Well, yeah. At Disney, if you were to see the extent of how long the line is, you might want to turn away. So they have the lines wrap around and you cannot see, you know, the next segment of the line from the segment you're in. But what that does effectively is break up the line into, you know, sections of a line. And every time you get around a corner, you get to a new spot. And it feels like that segment is much more surmountable than the line as a whole.
5: That idea of being distracted is a key one um, that you develop. And tell us the solution that the Houston airport hit upon when they were flooded with complaints about how long baggage claim took.
2: Yeah, so a Houston airport a couple of decades ago, I believe, had this problem where people were complaining about the baggage claim taking too long. So when the people disembark from the airplane, they'd go wait in the baggage handling and baggage handling might take 10-15 minutes. And that's meanwhile empty time. They're tapping their feet, they're looking at their watch. And so the beautifully elegant solution that the Houston Airport came to was simply move the baggage claim further away from the gate of the airplane, which means that people instead of waiting around at baggage have to walk a lot further to get their bags but meanwhile because you're moving that time is filled it doesn't feel as onerous and you don't experience that as waiting even though you're still technically waiting
5: and then you get to baggage claim and there's your bag so it feels like this highly efficient use of time
2: yeah and then there's lots of solutions like this that companies have done you know you don't need to necessarily fix the problem of efficiency. Rather, you need to fix the perception of inefficiency.
5: Well, finally, David, what is the advice you give to someone who's facing a long line? How can they time travel?
2: One thing is simply learn to distract yourself. Learn to multitask while online. Answer emails on your phone. And then just you know be aware that the anguish of time seeming longer is an effect of psychology, and realize that it's really not as long as you think it is.
5: David Andrews, thank you so much for
2: speaking with us. Thank you so much.
3: David Andrews is the author of Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster?
5: Thanks to the people who are generous with their time as they help us produce the show, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and thanks to Voice Work and Cue Consultation from Emma Bentley.
3: Thanks also to financial support from Rena shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit science and education organization whose researchers study the origin and nature of life, including scanning the skies with its Allen telescope array. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
5: Your ears have been attuned to the Big Picture Science episode Time Travel Agents. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, Well, you'll find episodes in our archive at BigPictureScience.org.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because the shows zip by you at the speed of light. Is that true? It is. Check out the listing on our website. (laughs) You hadn't noticed? Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show.
0: You're back.
3: Yeah, I figured I ought to pick up a Big Ben t-shirt for my kid.
4: Any idea where I can get one?
0: The Houses of Parliament gift shop, of course, but it's just about to close. Oh, yeah. Never mind.
2: All right, thanks. See ya. Cheerio. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.